TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast, episode 80. For over 25 years, Saris has been designing and manufacturing bicycle parking and infrastructure products to help cities, neighborhoods, businesses, and schools become more bike-friendly. In recognition of Saris's involvement in the upcoming NACTO Designing Cities Conference, they're giving away, guess what, a bike fixation high-security outdoor bike pump. Visit sarasparking.com slash bike nerds to sign up for the newsletter and qualify for the giveaway. Also, any listener who stops by the Saris table at the conference will receive a special gift. Wow. And you know what, Sarah? The conference is going on right now as we're recording this. Whoa. So hurry up. Go to the booth. I actually saw Mike Becerich. They had breakfast with him. And... uh some of the other folks from Bike Fixation. We had bread, little uh, muffins and cut up fruit together. Uh, and he said some people stopped by the booth and thanked them for sponsoring the podcast. No way. I mean, He's our, pulling our leg. Our Bike Nerd fan club is out there. They're about. They're spreading the word. Uh, it feels like our street team actions are really working. You know, all that time <laughs> we, we spent in really, you know, mobilizing the youth of today in America's cities. Oh, wait, that wasn't us. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't us. Oh, yeah, the, the Bike Nerds grassroots game's really I, strong. I would say this is the organic grassroots game. Yeah. Because it's all so, on its, its own. It's so organic, it's just like wildflowers just growing up. It's everywhere. like guerrilla marketing. Uh, you know, you and I are a big uh, fan of these bike fixation products. I told the bike fixation guys today what a big fan we were of the public toolbox. Uh, but I think more important than the public toolbox is this bike pump. You've got to have air in your tires. It doesn't matter if the. Brakes are tuned up. It doesn't matter if all the bolts are tightened if you don't have air in your tires. I agree. It's very important. And I told them I secretly want to sign up for all the all the uh, contests so you and I can just win all the prizes and put them at our house. <laughs> Collecting all the bikes fixation and Sarah's parking products. This is That's really why we started the podcast. <laughs> I know. And you know, the truth is we don't have any. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't get, I didn't even get one of those water bottles. Did you get a water bottle? I didn't get a water Your bottle. Mom My did mom that. did, though. And she's very proud of it. She sends me photos every time she uses it. Uh, how are you doing, Sarah? I'm fantastic. But the real question is, how are you, Kyle? What time zone am I in right now? That's the You question. are in central time, but you've been in a lot of different time zones. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of like falling asleep around 7.30 or 8 at night lately <laughs> and waking up at like 3 in the morning. So I think the last time we left you, you were in Spain. I was in Spain. And I have to say, your monologues, while <laughs> short, right, they were great. And, Thank and, you. And the listeners won't appreciate this. What what I found so endearing about them was the fact that I still had to edit the <laughs> the three minute monologue that you did. <laughs> and you're like you're like very self conscious acknowledgement that you had just messed up saying something. And I was like, how how much 
how, do I need to edit these? Like, you know, I could just send them on uh, to the network. They'll just add them to the episode. And I'm glad that I, I'm glad that I did. I found it to be, so I think, I think it was probably good that I didn't have time to write a script or potentially prepare how you prepared for your solo monologue is I felt this urgency to record them when we had our technical difficulties. And so I just did them one after the other and they were really, really hard. And I found it, I found it so difficult to talk to myself. I just like, didn't know what to say. (laughs) Obviously. I I like the fact that you think that I prepared for that monologue all that time ago. (laughs) Well, you're better at riffing. It was just like talking into blank space. I guess I don't do (laughs) Or if I do, I do it just as I sounded, which needs to be edited. It did need to be edited. <laughs> I was so tickled that I, was having, that I had to pull like you know, 30 seconds out of what was a three-minute recording. <laughs> um, yeah, Yikes. but but I was in Spain during that period of time. And I carried this microphone around the entire country and had so the, – the, the Wi-Fi access in our Airbnbs were so sketchy. That we just couldn't connect. We tried desperately. So where did you go in Spain? I, I need visit, to eat. I visited the city of Barcelona and Sevilla. So you know this because this is where we, we started the podcast a couple of years ago after a study tour that you and I took together to the Netherlands. And that study tour was organized by People for Bikes, my my employer now. And so we are doing more study tours um, next spring and summer, taking city leaders back to the Netherlands. But we're also adding for the very first time a new destination in Spain. Um, Spain's There's been some Spanish cities that have been doing some more recent work in growing their bicycling network. And somebody on our team had to go in advance of the group, um, scout out all of the great bicycling Somebody had to sit on the beaches and eat mm. tapas and it's check so out tough. restaurants. I drew the short straw, and so I took mm. the hit for the team. I was joined by uh, Randy Newfeld from the Sam- SRAM Cycling Fund, who who is a supporter of those trips, and he'll also be attending the, the Spain study tour in April. And also our new friend Lane Santa Cruz from Tucson, Arizona, who is just an amazing community organizer down there, and uh, I really value her perspective and insight on how sort of learning experiences translate into the Latino and Mexican American community. So we took her to sort of get a better idea of, you know, what might some of the challenges be around language and culture, you know, if we have some uh, Latino participants on the study tour. So the three of us, and uh, we have a we have a local friend, Haritz Ferrando, uh, who lives in just outside of Barcelona, and he's helping organize our work on the ground there. So the four of us just, you know, rode bikes and gallivanted around the the countryside, uh, touring infrastructure, stopping for our bowls of olives and bread, uh, and, you know, staying up way past our bedtime. That sounds amazing. I'm super jealous. I'm waiting on my invite for the next time you go to Spain in the mail. So in comparison from the travel that you've done with people for bikes to Europe, Mm-hmm. How was Barcelona different in terms of infrastructure or bike culture? Barcelona, I'll say that just in general, nothing about Spain feels out of reach in terms of its bicycling programs or development. It's all 
it's not like when you like when you go to the Netherlands, you're sort of like blown away because it feels like a different kind of place. It's sort mm-hmm. of like visually and physically and mentally sort of light years ahead of where we are here in the U.S. Spain feels like it's ahead of the U.S., specifically Barcelona and Sevilla. They're, like they're ahead of the U.S., but not out of reach. Like it getting to the point where those cities are at is achievable for any U.S. city today. And the techniques and how they're doing their work feels very similar um, to to how we do things here in the U.S. And so it, you know, it it is. I think it's where if a U.S. city woke up tomorrow and said we want to be really serious about bicycling and prioritize, you know, putting a bicycle network on the ground that's comfortable for people of all ages and abilities to use, and we're going to do it in the next four to five years. That's what you sort of get out of Barcelona and Sevilla together. So, you know, Barcelona is characterized by two-way cycle tracks in a lot of cases on one side of the road, uh, separated by parking or white flexible posts. Um, they have some really some, a couple quirky things that I'm not sure. You know, they they serve a purpose in the system. Like, so they have a lot of like center running two way cycle tracks. So they run right down the middle of the road. So they're not against the curb. Oh, so they preserve parking that way, and they preserve parking. And they also, when you get to a roundabout, which there's a lot of in Barcelona, the bicycles go on the inside of the roundabout rather than the outside. And so running the bike lane, the cycle tracks down the middle of the street lets you control how bicyclists enter and exit the roundabout through a stoplight. So. It doesn't. It doesn't. That that particular design didn't quite feel as safe as some of the others, but it was so that you could handle the intersection in a potentially safer way. So it was. It's you know. It's a little quirky, but it but it, it functioned fine. Lots of different kinds of delineators. Lots of people riding bicycles. Um, here's an interesting note that you might like. Uh, bike share in Barcelona is heavily used. We saw it all over the place. And it is exclusively for the use of Barcelona residents. Really? Tourists are not allowed to use it. You have to apply for a, to be a membership. And as a part of the application process, you have to provide a proof of residency. So what was their, do you know what their decision making was to make that a requirement? Yeah, two things. One, they have a pretty extensive bicycle rental uh, industry in Barcelona. So there's signs everywhere for to rent bikes to tour Barcelona, and there's a lot of like long-term businesses. So part of it was to shelter those businesses from any potential loss of revenue as a result of opening up, you know, public bikes for cheaper, uh, more accessible, that sort of thing. The second piece was they have really strong um, mode shift goals for the city, and that are established in relation to air quality. Um, emissions regulations that the EU puts on the city. The city is currently paying fines right now because they're not meeting their emissions goals. And they have a ton of programs in place, and Bike Share is one of those programs that's designed to move people out of cars so that they can stop paying these uh, emissions fines. Have they seen a mode shift since they've started this process? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that most of their efforts have been on shifting people to public transport. Uh, so they have subways, they have streetcars, they have buses, they have like a cable car that goes up into the mountain, they have ferries, um, and they 40, 40% of their population uses public transit to get to work every day. Um, they're, they're How, bike- 
Do you know what the percentage what percentage was like ten years ago? I, I don't. I remember seeing a chart, and I can probably pull it from my notes. We'd have to translate it, um, but it but it shows a, a really large growth over that period of time. Here's a cool thing. Okay. If you sell your car, <laughs> if you sell your if you live in Barcelona, you sell your car, you you'll get a three year transit pass for free. That's sweet. Yeah. Does that include by a bike share pass? Yeah. What? Yeah. Dang. Right? I mean, they're, like they're really serious about moving this. Here's another fun fact. Uh, Barcelona Bring them has, on. Barcelona has 600,000 parking spots inside of its limits, both public and private, on street and off street. So they know exactly how many parking spots there are for cars in their city. Uh, 100,000 of them uh, are on street parking. Uh, 100% of all parking spots in Barcelona cost money to park in. They don't have any free 100%? 100%. I like the way that sounds. Wait, you hear this. To implement their full bicycle plan, to put the full network in so that everybody has equal access to safe and comfortable bikeways in the city, is going to cause the disruption of 10,000 parking spots. And so, like, when you sort of, like, frame it in those terms where you're sort of looking at out of 600,000 parking spots available for people to park in, uh, less than, like, 5% are actually going to be impacted by fully implementing the bicycle network citywide. Those are some good stats. Good stats. They had a lot of good stats there in, in the Barcelona. Uh, what was Sevilla like? Mm, Sevilla was very cool. I actually... I can I'll say on the record that I like Sevilla better than I liked Barcelona. And maybe it's just that it felt a little bit more like Memphis. Um the truth is it really felt like New Orleans um in a lot of ways. The buildings look the same, the way the roadways are laid out are kind of the same. It had that sort of like very like old world kind of feel to it. Um and so you know, I I I immediately saw comparisons to uh, to New Orleans while I was there. And, I, you know, understandably so. Like, those are the people right. that came over and founded New Orleans. So I, I immediately saw sort of that connection. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's a little dirty. It's a little like, you know, people doing the grit and grind every day. Um, you know, nothing. It's not showy and fancy and flashy the same way that Barcelona was. So if you think of Barcelona in terms of, Barcelona has the density. Here's, here's what I'll describe it. Barcelona has the density of New York City, right? It's it's high rises. Mm-hmm. It's lots of people. There's hustle. There's bustle. There's trucks. There's sirens. There's all that sort of stuff happening. It's, it's sort of like busy like New York City, but it has a Southern California sort of like flora uh, and fauna kind of feel. And Sevilla also has a larger mode share of individuals using bikes. Is that correct? Sevilla does. Yeah. So the difference is in Sevilla, it's sort of on the southern coast of Spain. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, And Sevilla has more people riding bikes as a percentage, um, but they don't have quite as good public transit numbers. Um, It's a bit more sprawling of a city. It's uh, it's really flat compared to Barcelona. Um, and in 2006, Sevilla almost had no bicycle infrastructure on the ground whatsoever. But by 2010, so in those in those like three and a half, four years, they constructed 120 kilometers of protected cycle tracks in the city in those three years. Wow. And they went from 0% of people riding bicycles to 6%. 
Zero percent. Zero percent. Memphis would qualify as a zero percent. Zero percent because it's like a point something. And Portland, Portland is a six percent city. To get to put that in perspective for you, so they went from Memphis to Portland in three years. And, How? And that's mind boggling. That's that, a great, great yeah. analogy. Thank you. To put that in perspective, I want to. I just want to. I'm just bringing the perspective today. Portland took <laughs> 30 years to get to six percent. So they so Sevilla did it ten times faster uh, in a modern age. So they took away space for cars. They put two way cycle tracks on all of their major major roads. This is not this is not like building a bike lane on a quiet residential street because nobody's going to get upset because we're not taking away parking. Right. This is they went out to the arterial roadways and they took away space for parking and for driving. And they put two way green cycle tracks in. It's not always pretty. Sometimes you know it's clear that they did it in a hurry. Some of it's using temporary materials. Some of it's a bit more permanent. Uh, you know, not every crossing is perfect. It's a it's a little, you know, it's a little imperfect actually, sort of in its execution. There's there's parts where there was like a tree growing, right? And so the cycle track just sort of goes around the tree, sort of splits. <laughs> there's just a tree. There's a tree in the middle of the cycle track. Um, but the, but the way, way they did it was they like tackled the network as a single project. They told us they, that when they were going to you know to, to construction, it was just the network. The bike network was the project. There was no there was no like we're going to do this corridor or this little project. And over the next fifteen years, we're going to gradually build it up. They just built the whole thing in three years, and people responded. They started riding bikes. Because it was suddenly safe and convenient to do so, they also coupled that with removing cars from the from the downtown central city area. So they took they took all of these old like pedestrian plazas that were you know created in the 1700s, and they that were, that were being used as parking lots and for places to drive cars and whatever way you wanted to, and they got all the cars out of there. Um, those those places and those plazas are now you know alive with life all night long. Uh, well into the evening, 11 p.m., you know, there's just families out there playing in these places that used to be parking lots for cars. And now there's trees and there's businesses and cafes and parks and playgrounds sort of in these spaces. So they, they got all the cars out of the center city and they made it easier for you to bike into, out of and around the center city. And it's it's sort of an amazing, amazing story. They also did it. If you think back to that time, 2006 to 2010. We here in America were just just dipping our toes in our economic recession, you know, around 2008 or so. It came a little bit later in Spain. You know, it was just it was sort of delayed by just a little bit, sort of the dominoes falling based on the American fall at that period of time. But this is a region of Spain that was hit very hard by the recession. In fact, today there's they're at 30 percent unemployment still in 2017 they haven't they haven't quite recovered from that recession yet so to think about a city spending 30 million euros to drop in a full network 120 kilometers of cycle track into the city during that period of time it's it's even it becomes i think even more remarkable has this sort of huge shift from zero to six percent created a bike economy or shifted the economy in any way well I I don't I don't know that I can speak to sort of like a specific bike economy. What I can say is that they sort of indicated our our friends there sort of indicated that tourism 
has, has sort of come in as the industry that's sort of keeping them afloat today. Like they're still not doing great. 30% unemployment is crazy, right? No. Like yeah. We, like we never, we never hit that at all in most, in most of our cities. 30% is exceptionally high and it's not even the highest in Spain. There's places that are even worse off than that. But the tourism has picked up, and I think it's in part because Sevilla is fairly inexpensive compared to Madrid or to Barcelona. Um, and so the industries that sort of surround that, which include things like bicycle rentals, you know, have helped, um, you know, keep keep the city going, keeping the lights on for now. And they have a bike scheme, a bike share as well. Is that correct? You do. J.C. Deco, the same. Is it, does it have the same resident qualification it does not but the for a tourist the minimum pass you can buy is a seven-day pass which is like 20 euros so you you are not allowed to get sort of like daily access um so so it's 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 a little bit different that we could have gotten access um but we we rented some bikes because we weren't going to be there for that long i'm fascinated i did not know about the sevilla that three years in comparison to Portland, it just, I mean, just crazy. Yeah. I'm just, uh, just dropping the perspective today. What's here's, well, here's an interesting thing. So following, following the conclusion of the bicycle lane and some other things, right. Is really when the recession hit Sevilla really hard, Spain and Sevilla really hard. And, voters voted out the current government sort of, you know, in a time of turmoil, let's see some change. Uh, and they voted in a conservative, fiscally conservative government. And the, what was, what was, it was sort of described to us in this way. They said they were so conservative that their only agenda was to conserve everything. And they didn't spend money on any programs hardly at all during their entire four years. And so people thought they were bringing in some people who were going to help shore up the finances. And really what it turned into was they just they did not do much of anything. So they were actually voted out uh, immediately after the after their first term. And they re-voted back in the the kind of government, the government system. You know, they elect parties there. They don't elect sort of individuals. They reloaded, voted back in this party who had initially done the cycle track. But during that conservative era, there was no expansion of the cycle track. So for for four years, from 2011 to 2015, Hmm. 2016, they didn't do any work on the the network. And so we we had a lot of questions going into it. We knew about the success story of Sevilla, but we weren't sure, you know, is is it inspiring enough if you're not actually expanding it? And as we were there, what we found out was that the success of what they did there is evident in the fact that bicycle riding numbers continue to grow year after year. Bike share use continues to grow year after year. They haven't torn any bike infrastructure out during that period of time, even though there's been a growing, you know, movement of bike lash that that has that that now exists um, in the face of actually having some progress made. And they didn't cede any ground on, the, on those spaces that were re-pedestrianized, re-given back to sort of people, uh, they haven't ceded any ground and returned those back to cars. And so I think that I think the testament and the the strength of what happened in Sevilla is the fact that the changes were so dramatic and so important to people and so embraced by people that even a conservative government who might be looking for a political win, you know, in the face of 
sort of some the, the the recession and trying to sort of appease people who are who are losing their jobs and they're saying you're spending money on bicycling and not on us. Uh, all of that stayed, and the conversation now is about not about you know ripping the cycle tracks out, but it's about you know how well maintained are the cycle tracks and can we make these crossings better? How do, how do we improve the system over what we created, you know, nearly 10 years ago? And while we were there, they were constructing some of the first expansions. They just finished a plan to grow the network again, to double it in size and get this there. They want to hit 15% bike mode share in the next four years. So that's bonkers and fantastic. Are they also doing, what is the advocacy sort of community look like or does it exist around programming and advocacy to you know increase this mode share you know i found that the advocacy in spain looks very similar to advocacy here in the u.s um even in barcelona it's a lot of like educational programming it's a lot of community organizing it's a lot about sort of providing people opportunities to to use bicycles and to access them you know what's what makes it a bit easier in both barcelona and sevilla is that there's networks on the ground that people can actually use they have really robust public bike share systems that people can actually use uh they have you know density and destinations that people can actually reach by bicycle you know they have thorough uh you know, facilities and programs that sort of promote getting out of cars, you know, from a like social society standpoint, there's a lot of consciousness and awareness around climate change there that's driving a Mm -hmm. lot of of personal behaviors. So the advocacy is made, I think, is similar, but also made a bit easy because some of the some of the societal norms are are a bit more favorable towards using alternative modes other than cars. I would say you know, in some ways, though, it's very much the same. So in Sevilla, we were visiting a community bike program called Santa Cleta, and it's run by a couple of women who are really invested in, you know, getting more women bicycling specifically. So it's like it's like revolutions in Memphis or any other community bike shop in the U.S. where they have repair work that you can do on your bicycles. They do rides, they do educational events, but they do a lot of their programming specifically designed towards women. Now, one of the things they told us is that in Sevilla – 35% of the people bicycling are women today. And some of the uh, – Lane, who was with me again, from she's from Santa, um, from Tucson. Lane told me that she f- visibly felt that there were lots more women riding in Sevilla, even than in Barcelona, and that she noticed – like she visibly noticed that there were lots of women riding bicycles. And what the, what the operators of Santa Cleta told us is that – they're only at 35% of their riders are are women. And we sort of looked at each other because in the U.S., if your city had 35% women, you would you would be doing really, really well mm-hmm. um, in terms of permanent. So uh, Isabella, who, who helps run Santa Cleta, uh, she's a, one of the vice presidents of the European Cycling Federation. She has sort of written this book about – um, getting women cycling. I haven't read it because it's all in Spanish, um, but I got, but I bought a copy because I was so inspired by her story. <laughs> There's a forward in the book by one of our former guests, Angela Vanderkloof. Uh, oh, who fantastic! Was, who was, so, so yeah, and you remember you, we met Angela when we were in the Netherlands together. Yeah. So she, you know, it's all sort of tied into to all of that work. And so I would say that the the advocacy in Barcelona feels much. I'm not in Barcelona in Sevilla felt much more sort of grassroots than what I sort of thought about than I really noticed in Barcelona. Barcelona sort of feels like a very like well-oiled machine in terms of its advocacy and the programs they run where this felt a little more like down to earth, I think. 
Wow. You're, you still sound so jazzed and excited about the trip. That's fantastic. Well, it was it was not too long ago. It's very fresh on my mind. <laughs> I guess I can't keep track of the time anymore. So when did you get back? I don't know. It was like a days, weeks ago. Um, and then you were in Tucson? I was in San Diego after that. Oh, gosh. And then in Tucson, Chicago today, Memphis tomorrow, and then I'll be home. Well, that'll be nice. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. What were you doing in San Diego and Tucson? Uh, San Diego, I was there for a conference of sort of local funders, philanthropic organizations mm-hmm. that that work on climate, energy, energy, renewable energy issues. So, People for Bikes is a part of this part of this funding network because we're because in addition to like programs, we also do infrastructure funding. So we're technically a funder and. So I went with our team to sort of meet some of the funders and learn about what, what, what they were doing across the country. They just happened to be meeting in San Diego. So also at the same time, the U.S. Sustainability Directors Network was meeting in San Diego. So it was like all the sustainability directors for cities across the U.S. Oh, I, cool. I heard that the person from Memphis was there, but I couldn't find her. Jenna, maybe? I don't know if you've ever run into her or not. I've run into... People that I believe work for the sustainability department, but I don't want to speak any further because I feel like I'll make a mistake. Yeah, I, I couldn't find her. So not in a covert way, in a just not placing names to faces yeah, sort of yeah. way. So that was nice. And then I was in Tucson shortly after that. I went home for like a day, washed my clothes, went to Tucson. I was there for Ciclavia on Sunday. Nice. They're getting uh, bike share. They are launching bike share to go. Um, is the name of their bike share system. I met the I met the executive director and talked with them. Uh, it, this was the first time they had done a Ciclavia on the south side in Tucson, uh, which is where our People for Bikes is doing our big jump project at. It's where our friend Lane Santa Cruz is from, and it's you know it's largely a Mexican American population who have been there for generations. And to look at Tucson in the eyes of sort of infrastructure. Uh, all of their spending and construction has really happened in the north side of Tucson, where mostly white, wealthy, affluent people live. And the south side has has been ignored. There's very little bicycle infrastructure down there today. So to be at the Ciclavia and see, you know, 20,000 people riding bikes along three miles of closed arterial roadways was awesome. Uh, I ate a lot of really great tacos and Sonoran hot dogs. Uh, there was like a zip line going down the middle of the road at one spot. Lots of inflatable bouncy castles. Uh, local advocates, the Living Streets Alliance were there. I don't know if you know this or not. We had Kylie on the podcast a couple months ago from Living Streets Alliance, back in the spring, I think. And there was a little Memphis-Tucson beef for a little bit um, back when I was working in the city. It was mostly me... Just I'm familiar. Sending, me sending hateful tweets to, to Tucson, um, trying to prop up our own bicycle game. Ultimately, at the end of the day, Tucson beat us in this little competition, this little friendly competition. And the Living Streets Alliance crew or the or the sent me the condolence package um, to sort of you know help me through my my pain and sorrow in the, in the, <laughs> in the defeat. So it's always good to see them. And uh, I told them I told them that I was just there to steal their secrets and make it make it happen better in Memphis. So I'll send you the notes that I got. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, the crib sheet. Topping a zip line that's going to be tough. <laughs> just just <laughs> an FYI. Hey, there's a zip line in Shelby Farms. 
Yeah, there definitely is. <laughs> there, it's there. It is. It exists. So tell me, that's been like half an hour of me, Sarah. Tell me about you. You got stuff to say. You know, I'm brief, condensed. I keep things I know, short and efficient. I feel like if you go into this, I'm going to have to edit at least 30 <laughs> seconds out of it. Uh, how has, I know you've, you've been swamped launching a bike share system. In progress, yes. It's yeah. a lot of work. I mean, people tell you it is. And it truly is what a makes, fun what, and what satisfying What makes it so much process. work? Don't you just buy some bikes and put them out there? It's it's a little bit more than that. Y- is it? Yeah. I think especially when you're building an organization alongside of the bike share program at the oh, same cool. time. Right? So you're, we are, you know, in the process of hiring our executive director who will lead the 501c3 and be an integral part in launching a revolutionary um, system here here in Memphis in spring of next year. I love how then, you, just, you just like rolled the, the taglines just roll off your tongue. Yeah. <laughs> you can can you tell that I have the same conversation yeah. every day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting to do all of the kind of, you know, nuts and bolts organizational build out of the organization and then also working with our fantastic partner B-Cycle, we're also starting to do some site planning and some of the actual implementation pieces kind of all along parallel. Um, So by the time the podcast comes out, we'll also have our operations manager job position posted and we'll really start to build kind of the core management team for the organization, which will be really exciting. And we'll also begin the public input process where Memphians will be able to like many cities before us, you know, put a pin on a map about where, where they would like to see a station and mm. kind of continue our proof of concept conversations with community members to ensure that, you know, we're launching a system that reflects Memphis. So it's an exciting time. And really it's, you know, the way we're defining spring is March or April. And that to me is yesterday. Yeah, I'm with you. We're, we're, <laughs> ta- we're taking the study tour to Spain in April. And I'm like, holy smokes, April's tomorrow in a lot of ways. It is, but it's really exciting. And I'm excited about the, you know, the bike will be the dash bike. And it just has, I think, finalized their kind of last sort of beta and prototyping that they did in in Jackson Hole. And Mm -hmm. so it'll be really exciting to see there's this kind of unknown aspect about the equipment that we'll be getting. Yeah. Um, You know, we haven't touched the station yet because it is a prototype and it doesn't exist. There's only one that exists and it's in Waterloo, Wisconsin. So that's sort of that part of us, you know, really working closely with B-Cycle to ensure that the technology is how we, everyone wants it and that it's an excellent system will be, will be really cool. Wow. Are you, let me ask you this. Are you looking forward to wrapping that up and handing everything off to the, to the new team that you're building? Yeah, I am. I like to build projects and, It feels kind of as, you know, I think every day a little bit less is on my to-do list list regarding bike sharing on someone else's. And so it's exciting to see it kind of grow its own legs and and move forward. Let me ask you this question, reflecting back on our time talking with other leaders in bike share. How are you? How are you feeling about um, are are you still feeling good about bike share, the future of bike share? (laughs) <laughs> That's such a hard I, – I didn't expect that question to be asked. Um, no, I think actually we're launching for Memphis in exactly the right time. 
there's a lot of, you know, activity around dockless systems and technology is ever changing. I think it's too soon to know from a, you know, a system or, or an infrastructure perspective, you know, could we have done things differently? I feel really confident in the product that we've done. And I feel confident that, you know, all of the leaders that we've talked to, their systems are expanding and they're increasing their ridership and they're continuing to try new things. And that to me is the most sort of confidence building piece is very few systems over the U S you know, are deciding that bike share is not right for their city. They're, Uh they're figuring out ways that maybe their bike share system doesn't look the way it looked when they launched on day one and two years in, they're making changes to better serve their community and, and visitors, but they're figuring out how to continue it as, as a service mm-hmm. and an amenity. So that's encouraging. Yeah. Interesting. I'm still a little too close for it to be like, like that question even is like kind of terrifying. Well, I've been thinking, it was a loaded question. I'm, I'm going to admit that. Cause how, how do you feel? Cause you were here when it was just when bike share was a glimmer in Memphis's eye. I'm I'll be honest with you. I'm worried about bike share nationally. Tell and me more. I just as we sort of went through our interviews and you know during while we were talking about bike share with people who have sort of launched and are operating traditional bike share systems during the same exact time, there's been lots of conversations around dockless bike share systems, and those dockless bike share systems have now launched in many American cities. And I'm just I, – I think on our first episode for bike share, you and I had a discussion that I, that I mentioned that I didn't have enough knowledge then to really pass a judgment on what the impact of dockless systems might be. And I still don't know that I have the total picture, but what I what I do know is that they are a re, they can be a real disruptor in the bike share systems that we have come to know here in the U.S. How like how can you really though? It's how can I mean something can be temporarily disruptive? Yes, and I think that's the case. I. I think it, I do believe my biggest fear for their long-term success is that they're not actually going to be long-term successes. I just I was reading something recently about what's the sort of the business model around dockless bike share systems, and it just doesn't seem to sort of add up. Like the numbers don't seem to add up. Uh, the play is not really for sort of selling. Uh, you know, providing a a mobility option. The play is really around sort of the data that gets collected behind that and the the hopes that these companies can sell the trip data, you know, to really sort of generate their revenues, which is why they're offering the bike rides at such such a low price point. That, I I don't think there's long-term success in there. The question in my mind is, is traditional bike share in the U.S. financially stable enough to weather some sort of disruptive storm of, you know, let's say, three to five years. And that, that's, that's a question in my mind that I don't have a great answer for. I think, you know, the work that you're doing in Memphis in some ways feels unique to some of the other startups and launches of bike share I've seen across the country. You know, you've been very careful and thoughtful and thinking about 
you know, the efficacy of the launch and all of the steps along the way have been really thought out. And I, my sense is that's, that's one of the reasons Memphis is coming a little late to launching bike shares because of the thoughtfulness. But I think there's a lot of other systems that didn't do all of that. They wanted the flashy. They wanted, they wanted bike share to be there. They wanted the sexiness for it. But, but I wonder what would happen in some of those places if Dockless comes in and they're offering, they're offering the rides for a third of the price and you can go anywhere and you don't have to dock it. I I think there's I think there's something to it to the disruption. I I just wonder how many systems survive this temporary storm. I can see that. I mean also I think you know bike shares, you know P&L is not running fat anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I think that that's something that it is easy to disrupt, whether it's a city that's subsidizing the program or a nonprofit that's operating off of, you know, defined sponsorship and member revenues. Yeah. If you get even tugged one way, you're in kind of a sticky spot. Yep. And let, let me just say also... I've been seeing lots of positive press around the dockless systems that have launched in the U.S. Um, one week after they launched in D.C., I was at a Colorado bike summit in Denver. I was listening to Veronica Davis um, from Washington, D.C. She's a local engineering consultant, a, a woman of color there, talking about her work in D.C. around community engagement for projects with, with, with DDOT there. And she mentioned during her slideshow, he said, here's here's my neighborhood. One day after these dockless systems launched, there were bikes in our neighborhood. And look, there's a pack of black children riding these bikes through the neighborhood. And sure enough, there's kids, there's kids on bike, high school students on bikes um, riding these bikes all over the place. And there's not a there's not a red capital bike share bike in sight. There's all of the other ones. There's green, there's white, there's yellow for all the different companies that have launched. And she just made the note during her talk that this bike share, this dockless system, for some reason, is being welcomed by, you know, communities of color in the D.C. area. And I'm reading stories out of Seattle and, and sort of their thoughtful approach to launching dockless systems and, and how they're getting past some of the equity issues. And it just feels like they are potentially providing a, a positive turn while also in my mind, being disruptive to, to the total bike share market in general. And so it's, it's, I'm, I, I feel like where before I didn't have enough information to make a call one way or the other. Now I have so much information that I'm, that I'm really sort of stuck in the middle. I'm not really sure which way to, to go on the issue. Yeah. I mean, and I can, I can see that perspective, especially, you know, using DC and Seattle's as examples, if your perception of bike share was something that was exclusive, dockless coming into neighborhoods that, yep. you know, there were not stations before. Yep. I mean, it makes, it makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes me think about sort of when Memphis launches, all of the thoughtful, you know, interactions with community members, community leaders, the thoughtful engagement processes, you know, to what degree if you, you know, if you're down in South Memphis with Roshan and you launch, if you launch stations, you know, you've been, you've been authentic in your engagement. You've been careful uh, and respectful of the culture and history of South Memphis. You know, you're engaged in a lot of work around activating people there around bikes 
And do they feel ownership of Explore Bike Share to the point if a new company, if if uh, Ofo drops bikes in there a week after your launch, does that is that seen as an outsider or is or is that become embraced somehow by the community? So I, I think I think time will tell. Right. Yeah. I've also been struggling. There's so many people that don't even know what bike share is. Right. Even if it's in your city that I almost feel too, too insulated, mm-hmm. you know, regular people are not having conversations about station-based and dockless bike share because they're just walking out of their door and there's a bike that they can access easily or not easily and ride where they want to go. So they're not being disruptive, right? Like the consumer is not theoretically and hopefully being disrupted. They're just potentially either either getting better options or worse options. And I think that for me is like just from a, it's like a, I don't know how to articulate it, which is no surprise, but I've been thinking about that a lot lately is, are we having this sort of like, is it disruptive, like rogue dockless conversation that's like bubble? Like, does it actually matter? Like, shouldn't the consumer and the customer be helping to drive this conversation and help making the decisions for their cities? Because if it was really equitable, it would look like what's happened in maybe DC and and Seattle or what could happen in Memphis in, you know, six months where the consumer is making the decision about what's best for them. Yep. Which they should be doing anyway. Yeah. And, you know, since we've, since this this happened, I've been noticing there's been a lot more communities in the U S that are just going straight dockless. Um, and they're launching very, very quickly after making the decision to go dockless. So while I was in San Diego, I saw a presentation by the mayor of Imperial beach, an Imperial Beach went within three months, had bikes on the ground after talking with, with whatever operator they're using. They're having great usage. 30% of all of their trips are being connected to public transit. So people are riding bikes to get to the bus system or to get to the train system. 30%, that's huge. And uh, the other largest percentage of users are high school students riding their bikes to school every day in Imperial oh, Beach. That's my dream. I really want high school students in Memphis to use bike share. Yeah. A little, a little closer to home now for me, Aurora, Colorado, also while I was at the Colorado Bike Summit, told me, their planner told me while I was there that they had just released an RFP for dockless bike share systems to launch in the city. They didn't have a bike share system existing. They went straight to dockless. They're not, they're not considering a traditional dock system. Uh, on the morning that the RFP process opened, he already had like six uh, proposals on his desk at like 10 a.m. in the morning. They've selected... Uh, I think Spin is who they selected, and they're they're already operating. So in less than like four weeks, they're already operating bike share in Aurora, Colorado, and you know there's there's some there's it's it, it's coming. I and I think I think you know here's here's a perspective, and maybe maybe this is just me because I'm because I'm not so close to bike share. When I was editing all of the episodes for our bike share segment, you know which of course, requires me to listen back to all the conversations. I'm not, did you listen back to any of them? I listen back to all of them. No, you don't. Just after they're edited. No, I don't. do. I actually do. do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, when I listen back to it. I'm and- slightly offended that you don't trust that I listen back to them. <laughs> they're mostly for selfish reasons to oh. A, gain information and B, to pick out words that I say over and over again. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, apo- I apologize, Sarah. I just... <laughs> I sort of assumed that you were just 
rolling with it. This um, is just a flash in the pan of my <laughs> of my week. <laughs> Go um, on. Well, when I listen back and I think about sort of the conversations we had objectively. First, first, I, sh- I want to note for our listeners: we tried to get some people who work in the dockless industry to be on the show, um, but di- but weren't successful in getting responses and people agreeing to actually participate. So it's it's an area that I think we missed with our bike share discussions. Just agreed. Just to put that on the top the top burner. Everybody that we talked to though was sort of a more traditional bike share operator. And if I'm being honest, and I listen back to some of those episodes objectively, I hear a lot of people talking as if dockless is not that big of a deal. And if I'm being really honest about it, I hear a lot of the reasons why people are sort of in the the anti-dockless camp sounds a lot like nimbyism to me. Just... Just with excuses for things that aren't really excuses. And I I just think – I'm just wondering to the degree that people are really taking this seriously. To, back, to, to come back to my earlier point where I'm, where I'm concerned that traditional operators aren't going to weather the storm very well. Um, it, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. Did you, I don't, did, that, you, did you hear any of that? I actually feel like I picked up the opposite. Huh. I think my perspective, and, and maybe I could be challenged that it could be nimbyism, is if you let's use Memphis as percent, you know, as yep. president of Explore Bike Share, I really do believe that having a dynamic system that has stations that can also be docked outside of a station is the right thing for Memphis. I think it creates, you know, a great opportunity for the customer. I also am running, you know, a profit and loss statement that really matters if it's being disrupted from a member revenue perspective. Uh Uh And I do think it's easy to sort of react when you're a city or a nonprofit really operating from that you need all the members you can in order to continue to provide a part of a shared mobility network or however you want to, you know, frame it or message it. And so I almost kind of heard that almost this kind of like, I'm going to wait and see and hold my breath. And maybe it's not in my backyard because like that actually like really fucks up my backyard. Yeah. Which is probably nimbyism, but in a different way. Yeah. I I think when I'm sort of like saying nimbyism, I'm referring to the objections that, you know, there's going to be bikes littered all over the place as sort of a reason not to promote it, that the bikes are cheap and they're going to fall apart. They're not going to be reliable. I, those to me, in my mind, feel like things that don't really matter at the end of the day in terms of whether or not this is a, this is going to come in and take a significant amount of market share. And to sort of like to say that those are the reasons why we are against dockless bike share systems, I think, I think is a pretty weak, is a pretty weak argument at the end of the day. That, that's sort of what I'm referring to and not taking the bigger threat seriously of, Oh, to your point, our P and L statement is pretty tight today. Um, it's on, it's sort of, you know, on par with itself and we can't really take, you know, even a 10% you know, membership drop um, to really sort of, you know, sort of staying through this. We may be able to do it for a year or two, but we can't really, we can't last really as long as they can um, in this. So I, I don't, I don't know. I, it's interesting that you and I sort of 
had have different perspectives on that um, in terms yeah, of I what, guess what we heard from our guests. I've also been now really researching a lot about Uber's VC investment uh-huh. timeline and storyline. Uh-huh. And, you know, their VCs are still investing a crazy amount of capital into yes. Uber, like eight or, how, you know, eight years old or six years old. Yep. And I haven't yet figured out exactly how like that connects to my thoughts on like the dockless VC yep. brands. But I think there's really kind of, there's something there. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that, that's, you know, part of my fear, you know, back to my initial comment, my fear for bike share for the future is the fact that these systems are backed by big VC accounts. And, you know, again, oh my God, what if like I'm interrupting you? It's fine. This, I don't even want to say this out loud because it almost makes me a little nauseous. Like what if traditional bike share is like the taxis? Yeah. Like the taxi companies. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you. I, that's the, I'm not saying that's no, no, real no, no, to, to our but, listeners. No, I'm just saying as a, <laughs> but, to, but to, but to you put sort of what I just said, sort of like the nimbyism that I'm hearing that the negative tones and the sort of the, the dismissiveness that I sort of took away from our interviews. That's what I'm talking about, right? It's the taxi to the Uber relationship. And Oh my God. Like my, my, my question is just this because I, again, I want to go back and state that I don't think dockless bike share systems are going to be long-term financially stable. They haven't proven that yet. And what we do know about them is that it doesn't seem like, like they're going to be here for the long haul. Like I worry that VC money is about, about getting a huge ROI as soon as possible. And yeah. as, as soon as you can get back whatever multiple you want out of your investment, you sort of pull out and you disappear. My, my biggest fear is that traditional bike share systems also disappear during that period of time because they aren't financially stable enough to, to sort of weather the storm. And you, oh my god, I'm going to have a panic attack. I I don't. Maybe maybe I'm just like totally wrong about this, and I love to hear what our listeners have to say. But I, that's where I walked away from all these interviews. Thinking that that's sort of my that's where I'm at now. Um, I think there's some tremendous positive that can come from this. I think competition is good. It strives people to do better. I think you know what I was mentioning before about Veronica, about Dockless potentially reaching new audiences that traditional systems have, have, have ignored is really positive. I, th- I think I just wonder if traditional bike share is taking this seriously enough. The issue is not about how many, how many Dockless bike shares are cluttering sidewalks. The issue is, can you financially last outlast them? Yes. And are dockless, you know, truly kind of equitable and the right thing for citizens? Yes. I, uh, I'm sorry. You know, I don't mean to like we. Have, Jeez, we have, I was so looking forward to this interview to recap well, on all the fantastic people we were talking yeah, I don't, to doing really yeah. great stuff with their bike share programs across the country. Thanks, <laughs> Kyle. I don't. And now yeah. I also personally feel like I'm going to have anxiety. Attack. No, I'm. I'm. So, I'm sorry. Like, and I don't. I don't feel like you hey. and I. We're here to ask hard questions, Kyle. Well, I don't We're the like, bike nerd. You and I don't typically take sort of like a hard, a hard, you know, line stance. This is on the first something. time I think this has happened. But I just, I just, after listening back to all those episodes, I just felt like there was a real 
like disrespect for what this could potentially mean to bike share as a whole. And I'm just I'm just worried because I don't want because I want bike share to succeed in every city. I, I, I want to make sure that we're adequately providing the respect that it deserves. I'm, in our I'm going back and listening to them for the third time. <laughs> um, apologies to our listeners if it's uh, if it's too uh, on the nose for hey, you. <laughs> we are here to real talk. This is what I think this is what our listeners have been looking for. Really? We've been softballing our way through 80 episodes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Here are the bike nerds. Oh. Put on your helmets or your seatbelts or whatever you wear. And what if we become this like really hard lined? What if this is when we transition? We thought 100, our 100 episode would be a big deal, but maybe it's 80. <laughs> maybe it's number 80. We, what pe- if, we peaked early. <laughs> too soon. God. What what if also I'm like totally wrong and the future plays out just fine? <laughs> like, oh yeah, you guys, also an you guys remember that Kyle guy got got really like really hard lined about this lecture thing? <laughs> you also um you've actually I wanna go back and look through all of your predictions. We need to start tracking them. <laughs> you've got you made other very strong I don't I think maybe less um maybe more diplomatic <laughs> predictions than that. <laughs> Well, I think that this feels like a good transition to introduce our upcoming theme. Yeah. Which I actually think will be just as hardlined as this. No. I'm just kidding. We're, we're going back to softball. <laughs> <laughs> this is too much work. I'm like, my, my brow is sweating as I'm sitting here. Me too, no. You have no idea. Me and I, my tiny little room here. I'm looking out. I'm, I'm sitting on the 38th floor. Of a high rise in downtown Chicago with this window that goes floor to ceiling. I'm sitting right next to it and it feels like I could potentially just plummet to my death any moment. I just literally had to shut every spreadsheet I had regarding bike share down because I was like, oh my this God. is too I've just anyway. single I've just single handedly ruined Memphis's bike share launch by <laughs> no. by causing you so much consternation. We're doing it. we're doing a great job, but it'll be wonderful. Ooh. All right, next segment. You wanna do it? You do it. It was your idea. Oh, well, I haven't really thought about it that in that much detail. Uh, we are going to interview <laughs> the people that interview you about bicycling. Dun, dun, dun. We're talking about the media that covers bicycling news. There's a lot of great resources out there, people that produce videos around bicycling, people that write stories for online blogs or for newspapers around bicycling. And... We thought it'd be really interesting to talk with people about why they have focused their careers and their efforts on promoting bicycling to a, a wide general audience. I think it's a really fantastic topic. I think it gets us a little outside of the conversations we've been having lately that I think are re- kind of relatively a little bit weedy and program focused. And I look forward to kind of talking to folks who are, you know, thinking of questions that I think it's hard to think of when you're, when you're really close to someone or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't know why I said someone that was weird. Um, I'm looking have. at this as really as a professional development opportunity for you and I, uh, to ask people what questions we should be asking other yes. people. Yeah, this is how the this Bike Nerds podcast can get Bike even Nerds better. Bike Nerds podcast is really about selfishly you and I doing better at our jobs. 
and at, at its core, right? It's just about you and I talking with people and then taking those ideas and applying them to our work. All the way through. This is and no different. If nothing but consistent. I am also curious about historically, you know, are these individuals that started writing about, I don't know, business development and like, how do you end up talking about transportation or shared mobility or environment? Yeah, yeah. Like, where is it a, does it end up as a passion? Do you, you know, does the editor drop it down your lap one day? Kind of what are those stories from the individuals as a, as a reporter or a journalist? And then also I think there's, you know, as to, to your point, individuals that are doing videos and I think some more innovative medias um, to share stories about what's happening across the world and kind of, you know, how do they find those people to video? Yeah. And I, I'm, we have some people lined up already, some people that we know, you know, blog, our favorite bike blogs or our favorite reporters who report on issues in different cities. And I would uh, ask that our listeners, if you have a favorite bike blog, if there's a if there's a second best bicycling podcast that you listen to or after, even someone the bike nerds, even someone with like your local newspaper or yeah. publication that has really made a point to talk about transportation or bike pet advocacy or even something on a, on a larger advocacy um, yeah. realm. Yeah. If you, if you have somebody that you follow, if, if there's a daily site that you visit or a daily person you catch up with, somebody that's in your RSS feed uh, that, that you think is doing <laughs> – RSS feeds. It's so fancy terminology. I, it's podcast stuff, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> we have some other buddy else do that for us. Uh, but if but if you, the listener, want to make a recommendation on somebody you think could uh, fit into the topic of bicycle media or the media for bikes, uh, tweet us at the Bike Nerds Podcast. Get, let us know who, who you think we should have on the podcast because we are open to suggestions. Yes, and we'll look at our Twitter page. I do. I do look at the Twitter. I just don't okay. just don't actively tweet, <laughs> um, but I do look at it quite a bit because my Good. phone. I can't stand having those little red bubbles on my phone telling me there's messages. I keep I keep a, I keep a clear phone, Sarah. There's I no don't way. have Twitter. The only social media app I have on my phone is Instagram. Nice, nice. Yeah, so I get a little little red bubble like on a daily basis yeah. on my Twitter. And From like, a marketing professional, I've just got Instagram. I think that's fine. Hey, you know, speaking of Instagram, you've told me this before, and I didn't believe you that there's advertising on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's here's this is this is crazy. Okay. There was a couple weeks ago. There was a day. For like two hours that I saw for the very first time ads on my Instagram account. What was the ads? I don't remember. It was like every third or fourth photo was an ad. Does that sound right? Yeah. Um, that sounds like a lot, but it had to have been relevant to something you were either talking about or looking up online. But here's the thing. Within the span of like a couple hours, all gone. Huh. And today I have no, I'm ad free on Instagram. How is this possible? I don't know. I don't think you're paying attention. No, I'm, I'm, I've talked with people in the office about it. And I'm, I'm like, do you guys have ads? And they have ads. I don't have any ads on Instagram. It's got to be. It has to be somehow the way that you're interacting with. Maybe I'm just so cool. They're like, they're like, this guy. That's not it. This guy's looking up Star Wars toys. I actually feel like that maybe like a red flag that you're not cool because they're like, this guy won't even care about this sponsored ad. Or maybe... Because I'm maybe my audience is bikes, Star Wars, and soccer. 
and they're not doing ads. Maybe they just don't know how to fit that audience in together. That's fair. But but it happened for a brief moment, and I was like, Sarah is right. There's ads on Instagram. <laughs> and, then, and, right, then I, I, and then I think I had like a update to the app, and it was gone. Who knows? You know, the world, like they would say down south in the Bible Belt, he works in mysterious ways. <laughs> no offense to those. That was terrible. <laughs> Maybe you could edit that out. Maybe not. <laughs> He works in mysterious. Ways. I'm just gonna keep saying there you it. Go. There you go. There you go. I'm gonna double down on that. I don't know as, who he on that as well. Listen, or if she is. You just but... take you just take care of he, however, however you want to interpret that. <laughs> there you but go. I'm, That's I'm fair. doubling down on he works in mysterious ways. In addition okay. to my bike share stance, this is a very very uh, prescriptive episode. I love it. I feel speaking. dangerous. Do you? Yeah. I think all three people that listen to the episode though are. I'm not going to really care. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Sarah, it has been great talking to you. I'm going to see you tomorrow. Yep. In the wonderful city of Memphis. I hope to God it's warmer than it is here in Chicago. Can't um, promise that. Well, it's got to be warmer. It just has to be. Okay. Um, looking forward to seeing you. I'm glad yeah, we got this time to catch up. We've both been super busy. Looking forward to our next topic. Looking forward to the end of the year. We've got some nice things coming up for bike nerds in the future. Yep. And be well today. Yeah, you too. Enjoy it. That's a weird way to be well. <laughs> it is weird, but I'm going to roll with it. It's really fine. The next time we talk, I want to tell you about my Chattanooga trip. Oh, I would love to do that. Absolutely. TBD listeners. All right, I'm on my way to, to host. Continued. I'm on my way to host a taco party for people from bikes here at Nacto. We got tacos, we got drinks, we got lots of bike nerds in the audience. Lots of bike nerds. It's going to be a good time. Tell them I said hello. I will indeed. Until next time, thank you everybody. Make sure you visit uh, sarahsparking.com/bikenerds to win one of those air pumps. Got some exciting news coming up about Saris uh, on next week's episode. So stay tuned and make sure you tweet us your recommendations for bicycle media uh, interviews at the Bike Nerds Podcast. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OEM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoemnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.